This episode of What's the Story podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. We've got some good news, lads. Manscaped has a new product alert. The Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer is out now. It's available worldwide. Meryl and I have been fortunate enough to be given one of these to test drive. Lads, the results have been amazing. If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, long before Manscaped came into our lives, you will have heard us talking about the struggle of keeping your nose hair under control. No idea why, but you hit around 30 and for some reason your nasal hair just it just explodes, man. Just the growth explodes, but no warning. And I'd say over the years I've tried maybe five, six, possibly even seven or eight different nasal hair trimmers and they've just they've left you with that feeling of like, ah, it'll do. When you want to look your best and you want to feel your best, it'll do, will never do. So thanks to Manscaped and the Weed Whacker, that problem is solved. Mero took to waxing his nose. That's how bad it got for him. There's photographic evidence. The results are horrific. Even worse than all of that. Have you ever plucked a nose hair? Have you ever just been sitting there, just breathing? You can just feel one. You can't help yourself. So you kind of get your thumb and your index finger. Little pincer movement and you rip one out of your nostril. Your partner's sitting on the other end of the sofa looking at you in disbelief. Your eyes are watering for about 15 hours but they're grilling you. Did you actually just rip out a nose hair in the living room? 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Whether we're watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer reruns. What are you, a sick animal? Lads, those days are gone. You'll be clean, you'll be comfortable, you'll be happy. All you got to do is head over to manscaped.com, pop in the code WTSPOD, you'll get 20% off and free shipping. And the great news with all of this, the skin safe technology that's in Manscaped's Lawnmower 3.0, that's also in the Weed Whacker. So you'll be looking just as good above the waist as you do below the waist. There'll be no nicks, no tugs, no scratches. Everything is clean, comfortable and great. Thanks to Manscaped, we've got you sorted. Head on over today, manscaped.com, 20% off and free shipping. All you got to do is put in WTS pod. What are you waiting for? Go whack those weeds. Hello everybody and welcome to What's The Story Podcast. This is episode 223 and it's the first in the year of our Lord, 2021. Graham Merrow Merrigan, how are you? Good, how are you? And it's, it's great It's great to start the new year with one of our bestest friends. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. Someone that we would talk to every week if we could. Someone that when we talk to them, the hour is never enough. This man is just the best social historian in Ireland. Starting the new year by looking back. <laughs> and one of the best, one of the best podcasters in Ireland now as well. He also has his weekly slot on News Talk with Gavin Royley Hidden Histories. The incomparable Donald Fallon. Thank you for joining us <laughs> in our new episode of 2021. How are you? That's a great introduction. I take that every day of the week. Thank you. <laughs> He's also a St. Patrick's Athletic fan and a Dublin GEA fan, but we won't uh, hold that against them. Do you have the, the, the deep Shamrock Rovers distaste for the Dublin GEA setup still? Um, this, is, this is a great question. Um, 
when I when I overthink it and think it think about it, I have a terrible disdain towards it. Um, and it's like if you go to there's a lot of Shamrock Rovers fans that are still rabid Dublin GA fans. But at the end of the day, when you think about it, Thomas Davis GEA did try to end the club. And it's something that I don't think about often, but when I do think about it, I get a bit angry about it. But I would never kind of, I wouldn't judge any of our fans that still go to, to the guy. Like, is there a, what do you is, think about it, Donald? Like, in, in, if you're covering it, you haven't covered it just yet, I don't think, in your in your um, Three Castles Burning podcast. But how do you, on reflection, how do you think Shamrock Rovers fans for Three GA? I'm working on an addition. I've been working on it for a long time, to be honest, on on um, Keeper Rovers at Milltown. I've done a lot of digging into the kind of the, the, the archives of the fanzines. Brilliant. Rovers had a great culture of fanzines going right back, probably more than any other club in, in the league. And uh, great names, by the way. One of the Rovers fanzines was called Some Ecstasy. I think the joke was that you could stand on the terrace and say, anyone want some ecstasy? <laughs> the guards come running over and it's just the guy selling the fanzine. But uh, it always struck me as a club that was very... And you get this when you talk to people who know a lot about Rovers history, people like, like Jason Maloney and other people, that Rovers was always... It was intergenerational, do you know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. Even though the club has moved all over, literally all over the city, um, it's just in people's blood. I could understand when when something means that much to you, why you, you wouldn't quickly forgive something like the Thomas Davis fiasco. But yeah, I mean, forget maybe, forget Keeper Rovers and Milton. It'd be a great episode even in the in the the, the never-ending tug of war around Tala and the road to and the road to that stadium. It's an extraordinary story. For, for people, but I think it's funny when you're on the when you're on the hill, like watching the, the dubs, because the League of Ireland is so small and it is very small. I mean it's basically it's like a subculture, you know. It's kind of like yeah. saying you were a punk in London in the sixties saying you're like the League of Ireland, people gonna look at you for that. When you're on the hill you do recognise people from all the various clubs that you know from social media or whatever else. And yeah, right. Rovers are Rovers are more absent, we shall say. For people who are ignorant, like myself, to the Thomas Davis fiasco, lads, what, what is it? Well, Thomas Davis tried to put an injunction on uh, Tala Stadium in uh, South Dublin County Council. They wanted... They want. They didn't want it to be there, and they didn't want it to Rovers to be the tenants. So Rovers had to take them to the the Supreme Court, and it was a long fight and a long battle. And Rovers fans had to fund it themselves. Um, so as the four hundred club came out of that as well, did it? Yeah, there's really remarkable pictures of Tallaght Stadium when it's like half built and and like it's just out of control. It looks like Caseman Park in Belfast, you know, which has kind of been allowed kind of fall apart over time, and yeah. it's like the some of the work was done, a lot wasn't, and people wondered would it ever be completed. Like it was just an extraordinary time. And you walk through that stadium now, and I've been to see the like the Irish women's team tend to use Tala, and it's a top class stadium. But when you look at the pictures of it in the middle of the dispute, you're like oh my god, it's hard to believe it's the same place. Yeah, yeah. And and it's um the, the Sean Grover's fan podcast tales from the East End. They did a great um historical feature way back um, with two of the main fans that were involved in, in the court case and stuff like that. And it is a great listen to, and it's a great history lesson uh, to newer Shamrock Rovers fans who became Shamrock Rovers fans from the Talladays up. Uh, they'll know the fight that it took yeah. to get a home and to be tenants of, um, I suppose, South Dublin County Council. But you mentioned Jason Maloney there. I do know Jason is what was a Dublin fan prior to all that. 
Um, and he, I don't think he could stomach going back. Um, but also a, a shout out to uh, Big Al Murray as well, uh, Donald, who I know is a friend of yours, who uh, is the best badge maker in in the land. Thanks, Big Al. <laughs> it's um, it's an interesting one, I think, in general, the the, the history of football and or the history of you know like the League of Ireland itself. There's so many stories around it, and in fairness, as much as I try to wind Mara up over overs, then I don't have the intelligence nor the knowledge to be able to do it properly. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the history around the the Dublin clubs alone. The, there's a podcast series in that, like. Yeah, the last thing I published, um, it was kind of weird writing it all in lockdown because you know, people always talk about oh you, you're more productive in lockdown and all this stuff i think most people are actually i think most people you, the days all kind of blend into one you know when you're yeah, watching you tiger king or whatever is trending on. <laughs> it's, very hard to, it's very hard to kind of motivate yourself to do to do a great deal you know but uh the the last thing i wrote was an article on on soccer in the suburbs for pogue mcgoal which is a really cool kind of independent mm. football magazine and it's amazing how GAA never really got its grip on on the kind of new Dublin suburbia, even like the 30s, Crumlin, Cabra, uh, the 50s, a little bit further out. And even up to like, you know, the the, the 70s, things started to change because the team were doing well on the pitch, Mm. Hefo's Army and stuff. But it's amazing how long it took for uh, the GAA to really get into suburban Dublin. And like soccer was always the game of the suburbs. I find that really, really interesting. Well, that's I never I never talked to the GAA as a young lad because like growing up in Ballybrack, the nearest GA club, and and I still I'm probably wrong on this. Cooler Mera, was it? Yeah, yeah, Cooler, yeah. And I always presumed as a young lad from Ballybrack that Cooler was full of poshies because it was in Dorky. <laughs> so I had no interest. I had no interest at all. I was like, no, that's not for me. You know, I don't want yeah, that well, to do with that. You know, Roy, Roy Curtis, who I had on on Trigas's Burning not too long ago, great sports writer, uh, great pipe man as well. Roy lives in Terran Yard, and he was kind of making the point that uh, the GA boat codes. Hurling was always kind of going that way with football too, that boat codes are kind of more middle class now than they would have been historically. That it's kind of it's a game that's making its way into into those communities too. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the soccer thing fascinates me because I suppose it's the, most, it's the most egalitarian of games in the world. All you need is four jumpers and a ball, you know? And jumpers you can... for goalposts, shout out to that's it. <laughs> well, It's all in the name. Jumpers for goalposts is such a brilliant name. Yeah. yeah. It's all in the name, isn't it? That uh, it didn't take a great deal to, 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 to start playing soccer and that's why soccer came to dominate. Was GA always um, was it ever working class, Donald? Uh, oh yeah, well, I think the thing about GA was that it was all encompassing. If you know what I mean, like the the it was it was a game for all. But hurling, like one of the podcasts that I've half written and I keep going back to and stopping and starting the history of hurling in Dublin, like only one native-born dub has ever won an All Ireland hurling medal. A guy called Jim wow. Byrne, he won it in thirty-eight. They were the last Dublin team to win a hurling All Ireland, which is mad. Like people talk about Dublin dominate Gaelic football because of sheer population. But I think the failure in hurling, failure is a bit of a harsh word, it's been great successes, but not the, an All-Ireland win. But uh, I think that shows that numbers don't just mean success. Like Dublin just can't do it really in hurling in the same way. And this guy, Jim Byrne, 38, uh, 1938, every other player on the team who won a medal was basically from the country and lived in Dublin. So like guards, civil servants, school teachers. And like it was a countryman's game, it was a culture game, as they'd say. And the yeah. Dubs just never really made their impact in, in hurling. But I think that's changing now. And uh, you're seeing that across the city. The clubs are, some of them are really pushing hurling and specialising in hurling, but maybe someday we'll win a hurling in Ireland. Island. Who, who knows? To, to, but it really to, annoys me, this stuff about splitting the county in football, because, like, 
you know, all things end. You know, no one said split carry in two when they won four in a row in the seventies. You know, things all things come to an end. To to kind of change pace a little bit, but maybe stay in key with the the GAA situation there. The, a couple of months back, there was an unbelievable podcast, uh, the Bloodied Field. Um, how how much of the centenary did did you? Well, I, I imagine yeah, I imagine you paid attention to pretty much every bit of it, did you? Michael Foley did that book. Yeah, I mean it was yeah. uh, the decade of centenaries totally came off came off the the tracks, didn't it? And the tragedy was yeah. we like Dublin was the beginning of the decade of centenaries. We had a uh, the the lockout to twenty thirteen was a big Dublin year, and uh, that was a great year. I remember going around all these schools in like Eastwall and Ringsend with uh, the late Jero Leary, great character, the actor who died a few years ago. Uh, brilliant actor, by the way. He was in everything. He was in Michael Collins. He was in every film by that director of a great director Sheridan. Uh, so he got him a, he got him a role in everything. He's actually in the Fifty Cent biopic Get Rich or Die Trying. Is he? <laughs> yes, <laughs> is he? Yes, great Dublin actor. But the best role Jared ever played was uh, Jim Larkin. He was a really good, entertaining Jim Larkin. And in 2013, we went around all the schools, and I do a talk, and the kids weren't all that interested. And then Jared would get up and do the you know, the great only a pig great because we're on our knees, and they'd all cheer with him. <laughs> It was great. So Dublin was the beginning of the decade of centenaries. We had the lockout and it came ticking heavy. And then we had the ri- of course, the rising was basically a Dublin event with a little bit of fighting outside. But there was a real energy in Dublin in 2016, which was great. And then the focus went to the countryside because you know the war of independence was different in the sense that most of it happened in the countryside. But last year, the focus was really meant to come back to Dublin. And there were so many things. Kevin Barry, uh, the burning about Brigham, Bloody Sunday, like there's yeah. just loads of big events that were centred on Dublin once again, and I was really excited for marking all of them. But it just came undone, didn't it? And then the GAA, in fairness to, the, to them, like they really did the best they could in the circumstances. You know, I thought the the ceremony in Croke Park was amazing. It's brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. To be fair, from uh, oh, Cluxton the, laying the wreath and the the kind of eternal flames on the hill. And yeah. then, like, what a who who whoever picked Gleason, like, <laughs> oh. brilliant choice of, of of voice to read the names and the bios. It was really moving. It was probably yeah. more moving because Croke Park was empty. Yeah, yeah. Strange mm. as that sounds, there was a kind yeah. of real uh, emotional power in the empty stadium that day. But that uh, that St Henry went really well in its own strange way. You know, they managed to mm. do as much as they could. And Foley's book is is great. It made it, it made a really good. Uh, podcast it, did, and it was yeah. kind of the year of big produced podcasts because like I, mm. like you lads my podcast is not exactly uh i've seen your 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 setup and your setup makes me look like you know some uh pirate radio station <laughs> 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 all i have is uh, you know all I, all I have is a little zoom zoom recorder that sits on the kitchen table but i thought the bloodied field the foley podcast was so brilliantly produced it was it yeah. was clearly one of the uh, it was clearly one of the one of the, the the big events, if you will, from the GAA's point of view of the, of the centenary. They did a great job on producing yeah. that. And the, yeah. like there were other podcasts last year, like the Nobody's Own, and it was really the year of just. It really felt like the year that actually podcasts kind of knocked telly a little bit, didn't it? I think yeah. I think with people yeah, in lockdown as well, that's they, really they, fair to say. they had kind of well, everybody had more time in their hands, but it just. Everybody felt it probably a little bit more time to explore things. You know, get to that list. Ah, uh, oh, it's on my list. The great meaning to be de- me- meant to listen to that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and you know the thing about making telly is that uh, it's very difficult to make TV because there's so many people involved. There's the guy who does the sound, or the girl who does the sound. There's the camera person. There's a lot of stuff going on 
that like in social distancing is a nightmare. It's just really, really hard. And so there was almost nothing made last year. Yeah. And anything that was made wasn't great. You know, you could it was kind of low budget. But I think there was a real shift in media towards podcasts. They blew up because everyone was working from home and they're just that bit easier to produce. So yeah, last year was kind of the year that the the Irish podcast arrived, you know, about five years later than everywhere else in the world. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. We, yeah, that's it. We, that, that's what we keep saying to Merrow. We, we were yep. about five years too early. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, everyone on their dog has a podcast in uh, in New York or in London, you know. Yeah. Well, no, the problem been... is, my dogs have a podcast and it gets more listeners than this one. But um, <laughs> they're doing great, fair play to them. You mentioned um, you meant you mentioned the centenary of Kevin Barry there as well, and that was I don't know that was a weird one. Like I like so many people, I don't my leaving cert history project on Kevin Barry. But the centenary nearly passed me by. I, I, like, it was literally on the day, and it was only I started to see, like, a load of tweets in, in my newsfeed. And I was like, Jesus, that's that's 100 years today. Like, it was a yeah. weird one. It just, yeah. Yeah, it was strange, because he's such a, a kind of classic uh, iconography, like a classic image of the revolutionary period. of a great picture of Barry in his, in his, uh, in his Belvedere college jersey. Yeah. Is that and the remember- only picture we have, though? There's no, no, loads no. of pictures of Barry, loads but that's the iconic yeah. one. And uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, a street artist called Canvas, a really talented street artist, or street artists, I should say, uh, kind of like a, a street art collective. They mm. pasted that up in town on a wall uh, on Marlborough Street, not far from Belvedere. Yeah. It's actually still there. I mean, it was just a, a, a wheat paste on a wall uh, it's like five years ago, and it's still there. Uh, which I find amazing. People just love it so much; they've, they've left it be, and it's just weathering over time. But I thought like that the, the the ballad of Kevin Barry, so iconic, you know, was sung yeah. by Paul Robes and Leonard Cohen. He's such a a, a, a symbol uh, that I, I thought that would have been a much bigger centenary than than it turned out to be, which was strange. Yeah, Bloody Sunday, Bloody Sunday was so massive, I think, because the you had an organisation in every community like the GAA. Like the GAA exists everywhere. Every village in the country has a GAA presence in it, and they really decided that they were going to go hell for leather and marking it even within the, the restriction, and they did. But I think the state stuff, like the burning of Albrigan, the hanging of Kevin Barry, all that was pretty uh, was pretty lacklustre in the end. But what do you do in a pandemic? You know, it's very it's very hard to know. I wanted to go down to Cork for the, the 100th anniversary of the Kilmichael ambush, which was the mm. like a major moment in, in the war. 28th of November, 19th, so a week after Bloody Sunday, uh, an ex-British Army soldier, Tom Barry, uh, leader of a flying column in Cork, inflicts massive casualties on the British at a place called Kilmichael. And uh, I wanted to go down. I wanted to be there a hundred years to the day after it happened, but it just couldn't be done, you know. So yeah. maybe the hundred and first anniversaries next year will be you know, <laughs> the, COVID, the COVID centenaries. You know, they might be big. It's, um, look, have you have you ever gone into Belvedere, Donald, to, to look through their Kevin Barry? No, but they, they've got a plaque of him, and they've got a a, a tournament named in his in his honor every year. Yeah, which I, I like. So he, he kind of lives on there, which is which is nice. There's, I can't remember for the, for the he's, he's probably long since retired because he, he was kind of old now when I but when I was doing the Leaving Sale project I remember I got to go into Belvedere into that archive room and this guy showed me around and they they have they have like dance cards and they have all these things to like his his teenage years in school and letters that he would have wrote back home to to uh, I think it's Hackettstown in Carlow was it um, yeah 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 like but, but just incredible stuff and I'm going like. Why is this just fucking lying in Bel in a dark room in Belvedere? Yeah, he was, he was born in Dublin, but the family were Carlos. So it was kind of between the two. Mm. But uh, what I like about his letters is that he was very like he was a young lad, you know. But he wasn't yeah, yeah. that he wasn't that young. Like he was he wasn't much younger than most of the people would have been around him in those kind of spheres of life. 
but there's a real humor in his in his uh, letters that are it's like the humor for young lads so like he sometimes signs his letters uh yours till hell freezes over and another one is yours till i graduate you know this kind yeah. of stuff and one of his last letters he, he kind of alludes to the girls in ucd which i thought was quite nice you know yeah, say, hello to the, say hello to the girls for me. So he was just yeah, yeah. like he went to dances. He chased young ones. You know, he he had a laugh. He was a he was a full a, a full human. And one of his relatives, one called Shifra O'Donovan, wrote a biography of him last year called "Yours Still Hell Freezes." It was really nice to just read about someone that is almost this kind of saint-like martyr, but you know, to read the human side of them and that they were a, a bit of crack and had their had their problems and worries as we all do. It's, it really yeah. hum, 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 uh, humanized them. But yeah, that's the only place that anything really happened with Barry. There's like five books written about him. I think yeah. the people the people envisioned uh, a much bigger centenary than, than we got in the end. You mentioned UCD there. Um, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with it, but just a, a sad story that came out this week. Um, old man Belfield, Mick Bourne, he was a, a famous, famous homeless man who thousands, for the last 30, 40 years or more maybe, he was uh, a very familiar and a very fond sight to everyone who, who passed through Belfield at some stage and he passed away this week. Donald, do you, do you know anything about him or do you have any stories about uh, him? UCD amazes me because I spent like years of my life in UCD and mm. as a student and then occasionally teaching there a little bit. And I still like don't think I've seen half that campus. It's so yeah. enormous in, in in scale. And one of the recent podcasts I did was about the, the student movement in the '60s all over the world. You know how it blew up in Paris and in America and the Southern states, and talked a little bit about UCD and, and Trinity. And it was a big controversy back then about moving the college out to Belfield. You know, a lot of the students felt it would be the downfall of the place that they were moving too far from the city, and the Catholic clergy were very much in favour of it because they wanted to get them away from Trinity. They said that it was a, a sphere of Protestant influence <laughs> to take the poor old UCD students and, and move them somewhere safe like Dublin 4, suburbia. But uh, you just you can you can spend four or five years of your life in UCD and not see half of it and not know what people are referencing. I, I, spent, yeah, I, spent, I spent four years there, never once set foot in the, the Ag Science building, never once yeah. set foot, you know what I mean? Like, the, And there's great the, stuff, like there's a bar, there's a staff bar in the arts block. Yeah. Uh, which I was brought into a few times, which is an amazing place and like people mm. don't know it's don't know it's there. The, but it's, the, the, the upstairs it's in the college. arts block, the, the upstairs in the art block is like a different universe. Like when you start yeah. going into some of them and the little museums and that kind of thing that they have, it's, it's another world like yeah it never ends you know and there's yeah. all kinds of great mythology around around ucd like mad urban myths so in the 60s when it was kicking off with the students in elsewhere terrace and the old ucd what's now the concert hall uh, they occupied a big part of the building and when it was called the gentle revolution and uh, there's a, a an urban myth that they built belfield with a lake so that the students couldn't have a central rallying point central meeting point to stop them kind of taken over to college but apparently it's oh. not true apparently there's other reasons yeah. they built the lake but uh you know students in ucd tell themselves all these things they talk about the tunnels underneath the buildings and they say yeah. they're so the lecturers can escape if the students take over the campus but it's all this stuff that just passes on from generation to generation and becomes believed fact even if even if it isn't but uh, i just the scale of use and some of the buildings are so kind of they're real like 1960s brutalist stuff good and bad and then you can walk five minutes and see something like it that looks beautifully old there's just so much diversity in the in the campus but you'll never you'll never explore it all trinity is very different in the sense that trinity was never meant to be a college for everyone you know it was it was intended as a very 
elitist college. You have to be, for the first 200 years, Protestant landowning. They never envisioned themselves as a, a, a place open to all. So it's a much smaller campus, I think, as a result of that. Like, a lot of Trinity now is kind of growing outside the walls of Trinity, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, over to Starbucks and College Green, there's Trinity College offices. Like, Trinity's everywhere now. Trinity's just taken over the city. But uh, it's much more confined to a, a historic, smaller campus that you can walk around easier than than Belfield, you know. You'll never, you'll never explore all of Belfield. But I did, I knew, I knew him to see, and uh, there are other characters like him too. People who, I think, in some cases, had gone to UCD and just never left, and you know, were to be found sitting in the library, and you wondered how they got there. Yeah. Uh, the people who just knew it as a place yeah. of, just knew it as a place of warmth, and you know, it was, it was uh, unlike the city centre, somewhere where you'd largely be left alone. And I think that the students kind of took him to their hearts and looked after him a little bit, which is, which is really nice. So all that Belfield did he did he 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 had a sleeping bag on the grounds of UCD and he's how long has he been there? I, I, people talk about seeing him on campus like 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. You're joking yeah, me. Remarkable, yeah. So a real part of the kind of the the identity of the place after that kind of time, you know. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's it's mad. And you even I'm sure you know yourself, like from League of Ireland, like people go out there to watch their teams play against UCD and still get lost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the twice, the twice a year trip to to watch your club play UCD, and you just see fans of the team all over the campus looking for a football pitch. Even yeah, if yeah. Been there, even if they've been there like 50, 60 times before, it's just mad, isn't it? It's, yeah, it was. It, like it's, it is. It's, it's, it's a, it's a labyrinth at times, and I think, <laughs> uh, Michael. And again, like I, I generally I didn't know his name up until uh, the the news went passing away. Came out like that it was just. You know, old man Belfield or or uh, the the homeless chap in UCD kind of and yeah. And was, well, you know, in in, a, in Trinity they call it Stalorgan IT. They say it's not a yeah. Universe. That's that's true. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't think there's any justification for having two uh, universities of that scale because they're just competing all the time for funding and for influence. And you know, if it wasn't for the bizarre nature of Irish history that one was once Catholic and one was Protestant, they wouldn't exist as two separate institutions. And you know, if there's peace now. Uh, in the valley between the two you know it's been that way since the 70s the, the catholic ban on trinity's gone since the 70s uh, we could have a world-class university structure if we just put the two of them together that'll never happen yeah yeah but in the... terms of old man belfield mm. like did he where where does where was his sanctuary that's we a don't question know. I mean, yeah. I mean, people from um the area around the villages around the college knew him to see too. Like he kind of wandered around that broader kind of kind of Victorian red brick area around UCD as well as the college campus. But yeah, it's mad. There's people like that, like in Dublin City, who you see. Mm. You go into town. Like at the moment, actually, you go into town and they're the only people you see. Yeah. Because the absence of tourists. Like College Green is mad. It's so eerie how empty it is. And you realise that at any like in the at the height of summer, the population of Dublin City doubles if not trebles with visitors from from abroad so the only people that you see now in the city are kind of homeless faces that you'd recognize and depending on what day what time you're in yeah. wandering around it's very eerie very strange um, yeah and it is i think it's and uh, like th- wow. the thing that strikes me about it just like in terms of one of my enduring memories in my time in ucd is uh, old man belfield and like 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 you were kind of saying earlier down like he, he was this in, in jordan side but never spoke a word to him and I, I remember a couple of times I would have got a cup of tea and just kind of handed it to him, just, you know, feeling sorry for him, just, Jesus, look, it's a cold day or whatever. You'd always stand outside. Do you remember where the, the 911 and the student union shop under the library was? Yeah. Same around that kind of area. And, um, 
he'd be happy as Larry with a smoke and, and like that if, if someone gave him a cup of tea or whatever I don't think I ever heard him say the word thanks but there was this kind of nod of acknowledgement that he'd give you and and it set you up for the day you know it was kind of like grand now that's it and he was this yeah. to so many students he was this kind of there was a respect there like and, and uh, like UCD is, isn't exactly a bastion of you know the, the great and good at times there's there's an awful lot of arseholes that have gone through the campus you know but, yeah, it's, but very anonymous, everyone, it's a very anonymous place too because of how big it is exactly you get yeah. lost in the numbers especially if you're, yeah, if, you're, you know? if you're a Dubliner it's particularly anonymous because you know if you go to college in Dublin and you're from Dublin you don't move out you generally stay at home mm. so you don't have the same connection to a place as you know these like hordes of kids from rural Ireland who are all living on campus and kind of know each other a bit a bit better so I found that in UCD that um I just got the bus to UCD and got the bus home generally when I was done. So I didn't have the same sense of connection with the place that they might have had. I wasn't in any yeah. societies. Again, if you're going to college in your own county, you don't tend to join societies and stuff like that. So you never felt mm. part of the college. And he was one of the few kind of constants that you'd see all the time. And yeah, buying him a cup of tea and, and the like here and there. But uh, yeah, I mean, Trinity had similar characters in its in its day. Um, yeah. Matt the Jap, great character. Matt, Matt, Matt the Japanese Jap. man, we should say. I think we're allowed to say Matt yeah, the Jap. Yeah. Matt the Jap is everyone knew him in Trinity. He was a similar kind of character who just knocked around the, the college campus and people kind of looked after him and looked out for him. So, yeah, people in Dublin are very good at that, I think. Mm. There's a kind of quiet... That's mad. Yeah, there's kind um, of thing, you know, where the, you, in, Amer- in America, you know, some YouTuber buy a cup of coffee and they'll take a, a video of themselves doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in Ireland, people just do these kind of quiet little nice acts for, for the sake of... Absolutely. Speaking of America, Donald, we had the uh, insurrection on Capitol Hill there last week. <laughs> um, but I understand that we had an insurrection of our own in 1798. This, no, this was a really, ma- like, a couple of weeks ago, I sat down and uh, tried to map out the next few weeks of the podcast. Like, what am I going to do to man? And I heard this mad story from a friend of mine years ago about a riot in Dublin in 1757. So, uh, a, a bit of, 1759. 1759. And I should have remembered that, of course, because that is the year in which Guinness was born. Uh-huh. I wonder if that was a contributing factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 1759, uh, a rumour swept through the good city of Dublin. Uh, in a time before Twitter, rumours could still spread that the Irish Parliament was, was about to abolish itself, that it was going to vote itself out of existence. Uh, Act of Union, you know, bound itself to London, transferred the power it had to London. And they eventually did that, but they, they did it 40 years later. But this rumour spreads through Dublin like wild and a crowd of 3,000 people march onto the parliament and some of them storm it. And I thought, God, that's a really interesting story. And then it was in the back of my mind and I was watching the television one day and they cut from COVID, COVID, COVID to Capitol Hill. Like, this is absolutely mad. And in some ways, there were some, I mean, there's no great similarities here. I mean, we're talking centuries apart, different countries, different political climates. But just as a curiosity, I thought it was interesting that the two things kind of you know, lined up in my in my mind. And uh, like in the 59, some of the stuff they did is mad. They went into the house and they grabbed one politician and they, they stripped him of his wig, which to me and you doesn't sound like much. But in like 18th century society, it must be like, oh, my God, how dare they? They stripped him of his wig. They um, they put a, an elderly woman in the seat of the house. Uh, with a pipe in her mouth, which was like a great insult, you know, a woman smoking, sitting in the, the the throne of the House of Lords and all this kind of like mocking of the institutions, you know. And actually, for some guys, it was like they pulled one politician up the street, apparently. So, I mean, it, it was 
that wasn't good fun. But most of the day was kind of like insulting the institutions and, and stuff like that. And then when you looked at Washington DC and people carrying, you know, Nancy Pelosi's podium <laughs> around and yeah. Capitol yeah. building and sitting in people's offices with their feet on the tables, reading their emails. I got some of it was deadly serious. I mean, mm. four or five people are dead as a result of it. But it just struck me that it was an interesting historical parallel. So, yeah, I did an episode on that in, in the aftermath of that. But I was amazed that happened. And, I mean, of all the institutions in all the capitals in the world, it's just, to me, defies logic. You have to think on on some level, like, was it the allowed downfall of Trump? You know, was it a, was there any great attempt to stop it from happening? Because it was such a, a mockery of democracy that, they, they had to move after it against them, you know, and uh, if you wanted to get rid of Trump, if you will, or Trumpism, it's not about getting rid of Trump because Trump is gone, you know, Trump is on the way yeah. out, but if you wanted to get rid of Trumpism, which is a much bigger thing, you know, uh, yeah, certainly that's the death knell of Trumpism, I think. I think, yeah, I think. Where the, was the Irish Parliament buildings in 1759, though? College Green, uh, the Bank of Ireland, now the Bank of Ireland building on College Green, and they yeah, they marched down 3,000 strong from, uh, from, the, from the coom. Banging a drum, I love, oh. I love the I love the the mental image of them storming the Parliament. Yeah. It's insane, isn't it? How but, old is uh, that building? Oh, 1729. So 30 years older than than the riot. Fucking But hell. the footage in the states was wild because you know just the way in which the the police panicked, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and what did they expect was going to happen? You know, this has been talked of and hashtagged and, so and built up for for so long. I think they were just they were totally caught off guard, and the, yeah, to some extent. Uh, without sounding like a crazy conspiracy theorist, because that was a sea of crazy conspiracy theorists. I mean, if you look at some of the placards, which is absolutely wild, kind of outlandish stuff, but without sounding like a conspiracy theorist, you do wonder to what extent that that car crash was, was allowed to happen, you know, in the in the, in the the belief that it may take this, the winds out of out of that movement. Because I, I felt in the weeks before that, watching the Trump rallies, I mean, Trump was drawing bigger crowds at rallies after losing an election. And most people could get to election rallies before elections. Mm. You know, people were still donating money to Trump after the election was over, you know, on the basis that they, they didn't accept the, the the result of it. So, like, Trumpism uh, was something that was going to outlive Trump. I think Trump would have been having rallies right through the Biden presidency that were getting bigger and bigger all the time. And I wouldn't have been surpri- surprised if Trump ran again in 2024. He won't. Well, I think... I was going to say, I think that's the aim of this, the, the the impeachment process that we're currently seeing. I think the end game of that is ultimately, like they know, look, as we're recording this, he's got less than seven days left in office. Impeaching him is symbolic, but I think their their, their ultimate end game is to avoid him ever holding public office again. And can they include that in the impeachment? There'd have to be a separate vote in the Senate, but impeachment is the first step of that process from, and, and I, I'm not an expert in this, from the bits of red and I, I freely admit to skipping it and going to the cliff notes um, but but that's my uh, that's my understanding anyway what a remarkable have operator politically in the sense that like to be a, a multi multi-millionaire I don't think billionaire anymore <laughs> playing, but to be a very wealthy man regardless uh, and to have convinced millions of very poor people across the US mm. that he was their man and had their their interests and at heart that says a lot about the failures of the other party as much as anything about him and Absolutely. i noticed a like on the journal that i ate an article on the inauguration of biden and it's i think the title is you know celebrity laden inauguration plan and all these big names that'll be speaking at it and talking at it 
And that's a fatal mistake that they always make, the Democrats, mm. that they, you know, Trump didn't do that kind of thing. He didn't uh, put the focus on these celebrities like me or, you know, we, it was very much, they kind of built an insurgency of people who'd been kind of abandoned by politicians, the political class. Yeah. They didn't even realise that Trump was a politician. They kind of saw him done. as an insurgent in the, in the White House, but he was just, he was a politician at the end of the day, but they, 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 they never saw him as a politician. They saw him as their man who was taking down the inside from the inside. Unfortunately, they built, yeah, just they built a cult of personality around them, like like that we haven't seen it for quite some time. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even like the way um, his own family were so highly promoted in every aspect of the administration. Mm. Like no one voted for them. You know, yeah. like, yeah, like yeah. the US presidency, you couldn't name no one in Ireland could name who had those offices five or six years ago. In most cases, like because yeah, there's just there's just a massive a faceless bureaucracy there. But the way, like, it was almost like like royalty, wasn't it? The way they were just all promoted oh, the table. Yeah. They all had the, like, Trumpism became more than just Donald Trump. And it's very much the sun, too, you know, that you can see, even if you look at the website, like, DonaldTrumpJr.com, they're already kind of building him up to run. Yeah. Like, it's like a, the Irish can't really talk about hereditary politics because how many people in the dollar, the grandsons of people that are in the dollar? You know, we do yeah. it, too. We do it all yeah. the time, actually. TD dies and then their son becomes a TD. Like, this is kind of how we do politics as well. But it was wild to see it on that scale uh, at the very top of the West, you know, in American politics. Yeah. So I think um, you haven't heard the last of them, but like maybe you have. <laughs> maybe the 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 riot. It wasn't a coup. Like a coup was a like there's been there's been American coups. They've just happened in Latin America mm. or in the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see an American coup? You want to see a tank pull up? You want to see a tank pull up outside of Parliament? And you know you want to see uh, a democratically elected leader shot. That does happen. Just happens in Latin America. Uh, it was much less dramatic than a coup, but it was it was a bloody riot. You know, it was a riot, and it was a significant enough riot. And I think it's really taken the the wind out of uh, out of Trump. From, out of Trumpism. from it, we've gained uh, a cult Irish hero, Downey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to go to America and still insist on being called Downey is brilliant. <laughs> 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 like those stubborn Gwelgors who move to like Berlin and refuse to change their name, you know, and you always think, God help the the German bureaucrats having to deal with this guy. But people, Irish people are like that; they'll they'll never concede an inch. You know, they, they can't pronounce our they can't pronounce our names at the best of times. But yeah, the cling to Donny was 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 brilliant, and uh, he did a great job. And the other thing that should be remembered is one of the cameramen uh, who was inside the Capitol building uh, was from Belfast. He gave an interview to the Belfast Telegraph, which was kind of interesting, and he talked about growing up around Ian Paisley, and growing up around a lot of kind of loyalist street protests and a lot of rioting in the Ulster yeah. Says No days. Uh, and he kind of drew parallels to what he saw in his, in his youth in Belfast and what it was like to be there. But for a cameraman to go inside the building was really brave, you know, and uh, yeah. yeah, the fact that there was an Irishman inside getting the video and outside explaining what was happening uh, it's really, 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 really interesting. There's a, there's a great, obviously, there's a great history between Ireland and America. But there's one of the things we've seen um, since jo- Joe Biden um, was named president-elect, a big play on the Irish card again. And we, we've heard him when he's naming members of his cabinet. He, he made a little joke about, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's from Boston. And he says he's an Irish man. The only problem yeah. is he's Galway, not Mayo. <laughs> yeah, like uh, B- Biden. Biden, we get the feeling is going to be a friendly 
ally for Ireland, but there's a great history of people in high office in America being friendly allies to Yeah, Ireland. and it's it's a very funny thing. I, I come into contact with it a lot in normal times, like when you were doing when I was doing walking tours that uh, mm. like the number of self declared Irish Americans is about thirty five million, which is extraordinary. Jesus. Like there's, there's there's communities that rival that, like the Germans, for example. They're they're another massive community in in America and the Italians, the Italian Americans. Yeah. But very few of them have to fight for their place in the world to this in the same way, you know. And if you go to the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side in New York, really amazing museum, uh, they talk a lot about the unique hardship of the Irish experience in America. That, you know, in, in some places, like the, the Irish are involved in very nasty kind of race rioting in New York City. Uh, not long after arriving there in the 1850s, 1860s, like they're the bottom of the ladder. Like the reason there's animosity between Irish America and black America in the 19th century is because they're, they're both on the floor, basically, you know, of the, <laughs> the ladder of society. And uh, I think because it was so difficult to be Irish in the States in the 1840s and 50s, that the sense of Irishness, and then of course later on when revolution came in Ireland, like Irish America were the backbone of that in terms of like the Thompson submachine gun. What, the Tommy what changed gun. there, then, Donald? What what changed the the attitudes? Um, small well, I mean the attitudes were bad back then. I mean there, there was a rabid kind of racism in Irish America, and and when Frederick Douglass came to Ireland uh, in the eighteen forties, uh, the Black Daniel O'Connell, as he called himself, <laughs> he talked a lot about the hardship, the, the tension between. Irish America and, and Black America, but the the identity, the Irish American identity, is really strong and it's never really faded. And pa- places like Woodlawn, like you're going back, like if a lot of those people, five generations, and they still have this real sense of Irish identity. And I kind of respect that. I think we uh, we mocked them a bit too much in this country, you know, where I was like, oh, my great grandfather was from Donegal, you know, St. Paddy's Day, all this stuff. But actually. Yeah. They've done a lot of good too, you know. A lot of the the, the good Irish America has done in terms of the, the the peace process for one thing, but also investment in Ireland and uh, all that can sometimes be over can sometimes be overlooked. But uh, yeah, it's a strange beast, Irish America, because it, it ranges from like you meet people, for example, in New York City, Eastern Coast of America, very strong trade union tradition. They'll be very kind of kind of liberal Democrat types, but it can go the whole way across. You know, there is a, a, a right wing. Irish American block, the yeah. ancient order of Hibernians, kind of like a Catholic Orange order. You know, there's there's the whole diversity of, of views in Irish America. And I think everyone in Ireland, we have one vision of Irish America, which doesn't acknowledge how complex they are. Like America's, America's a continent. Like we're all closer to Berlin now than a lot of people in America are to each other. You know, we're closer to Paris yeah. than people in, people in New York are to the other coast probably culturally as much as ge- geographically, if you know what I mean. Like they, they're yeah, such yeah. a broad, massive country and people don't really take that into take that into account. But uh, yeah, it's a mad thing. And I think Biden, like the Democrats, have always kept a closer eye on Ireland and, and not always in a positive way. Like Barack Obama called us a tax haven. Mm. You know, highlighted the fact a lot of American jobs were, were being lost to Ireland and our low corporate tax and companies coming here and regarded that as a kind of threat to the American economy and he said it but then he also came here and you know made a shook hands and kissed babies too like they understand that if you want the Irish American vote you still kind of have to come here and do all that but they have been more hands-on like Trump didn't have uh, an ambassador to Ireland for a long time I think more than a year we did that's amazing Uh, Mick Mulvaney he calls himself Mm. Mick Mulvaney 
Yeah. The Americans always take Irish names and bastardize them into different <laughs> things. But Mick Mulvaney, the special envoy to the North, he wasn't in the job long at all. Like, the Trump administration hadn't a clue what was happening in Northern Ireland. Even in the, the time of Brexit, I found that mad. But the Democrats have tended to keep a closer eye on Ireland. I suppose they regard themselves more as the custodians of the peace process and mm-hmm. things like that. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, what the what the years ahead have. I think there will be probably a Biden visit to Ireland at, at some point, and that'll be yeah a tug of war between, what is it, Carlo or... Uh, yeah, Carlingford and, <laughs> and Mayo. <laughs> Donald, um, this week our news space has been dominated obviously by COVID, but obviously or as well as the mother and baby home report. Um, historically, yeah. I mean, Neil Martin seemed to, to point fingers at society. Um, one of the issues he said was society had, had, a, has, had as much to blame as as the church and as the state, how will how will all this be remembered in 50, 60 years time? How will his like you obviously hadn't had haven't had time to take in the report as a yeah, historian, yeah. but how will it all be remembered? Like oh, that's a great question. Michal Martin is actually a, is a historian and is quite a good historian. And Michal has written a, a couple of books on uh, Cork and the Irish Revolution and Home Rule Party in Cork, Sinn Féin in Cork. So, like, Mayor Martin has a sense of history and is, I would say he's a very, very good historian and enjoyed uh, the book of his that I, that I read. I think he made a good point badly, if that makes sense. I think right. he, like, he, he was onto something in the sense that I did a lot of work a couple of years ago on something disconnected and much less serious, but I did, I did an exhibition on um, censorship in Ireland in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And the impression I had going into that was that this was the story of a tyrannical church, you know, which which had forced censorship on the Irish people uh, against our will, like bludgeoned us over the head with the big stick of censorship. So I decided to look at as much, like the BBC did a lot of work on censorship over the years, Irish censorship. So I tried to look at as much of the Vox Pop and stuff they had done, you know, interviewing Irish people on the streets. I tried to read as many of the newspapers used to do a lot of, your views, you know, and they'd stop people on the street. And you know, John from Finglas says, and then you'd have a quote from John from Finglas, or Mary from Kildare says, quote, I tried to do as much of that digging as I could on, on how people themselves felt. And actually what I found out was that people in Ireland were overwhelmingly pro-censorship. So like Joe Bloggs at the time was a Catholic conservative and believed in that and felt it was necessary. And you had people like 21, 22 year old young men and women saying, I think there should be more censorship, not less. So it was a different country. And in a sense, I think Michal Martin was touching on something that is true, that a good chunk of Irish society knew to some extent what was happening in those institutions. Like when you look at the Magdalene Laundries and the, the receipt books for Magdalene Laundries in Dublin, they include places like Oris and Uchtaron, the Guinness Brewery, uh, the colleges. Like everyone was using the Magdalene Laundries. You know, people had heard what was occurring in them, but they were still a kind of except it might be the wrong word, hushed part of society. People knew they were there and people got on with their lives. And in much the same way, I think my father tells a great anecdote like about going to school in uh, a Catholic school in Ballyfermot in, in the late 60s, early 70s. And where you had, and this school was quite bad actually when the, when the abuse reports came out, but he said, you'd be afraid to go home and say what was happening for fear you'd bring shame on, that you'd be condemned at home 
for saying it. How dare you say that about the priests? So I think there was he was he was onto something that there was an awareness of the extent of the problem, and there was a blind eye on a societal level that was turned to it. But there's exceptions to the rule. I mean, someone unearthed uh, a brilliant newspaper report in the in the thirties on Artane and abuse in Artane in the Irish Workers' Voice, which was the newspaper, the Communist Party. How many people read that newspaper? Probably 500 people in addition. And 50 of them were probably guards who had to read it. You know, like yeah, society, yeah. generally speaking, was not clued in to the realities because they didn't want to be. They knew enough that they could have done more. But I think on, on a broad level, yes, society did turn a blind eye uh, from from all of that. And that's that there's truth in that. He said it in a way that I didn't like which I think seemed to imply that there was equal blame on society and the yeah. institutions. Now, I don't think he meant that. I think it was just in the in the, the rush of the moment, it came, it came across that way. You know, all of society shares this blame. But all of society can share the blame in different proportions. The ultimate blame is always going to be on the shoulders of the, and in the hands of the institutions. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, the idea of a state so closely aligned to a particular clergy in a republic is remarkable stuff, isn't it? It's just extraordinary what was what was allowed to happen. I think Noel, Noel Brown, the one-time Minister for Health, we could do it Noel Brown now, actually, because he was so centrally involved in uh, tackling TB. He wrote a memoir, and he has some great anecdotes in it, but one of them that always stuck with me was when uh, when the president died, Douglas de Heed, former president who was Protestant. The funeral was in Patrick's Cathedral. And most of the government ministers wouldn't go in because it was a Protestant cathedral. They just stood outside by their limousines and waited for it to end. And that's remarkable, that kind of mental image for, for a republic, you know, to be so closely Crazy. aligned with one church. To such an extent, you'd be afraid to walk in the door of another one. I find that absolutely, absolutely mad. You're, you're, you're saying there about me, Martin, being a historian. And that, to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Um, I thought he was a, a teacher, but he was obviously a history teacher, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe. But um, I was watching the press conference yesterday. And it's even more bizarre to me now that he is a historian in the sense that Aoife Moore asked him, uh, Irish examiners Aoife Moore and friend of our show asked him um, in his apology, will he be apologising on behalf of the Fianna Fáil party who are largely um, in power throughout all this nasty part of history? And he, he said he found the question very partisan and he was basically he also said that you know a lot of political parties were involved um or were around so he was yeah. basically saying Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour Party, Sinn Féin now I've, I, I, I've and he was talking about 1922 and onwards and I found that bizarre in that only a couple of weeks ago he was saying that Sinn Féin was founded in 1970 yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. but he was shouldering that you know Sinn Féin have part were a part of this as well. He was kind of one now, step off saying provisional Sinn Féin a few weeks ago, you know, framing them in terms <laughs> of... You know, exactly, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. um, it's very revisionist. It's, that's it's true, very... that those parties were... And, and parties that don't exist anymore uh, were in power too. Uh, Clan the Public then. There were all kinds of various people in Irish politics that don't exist anymore who would have been in coalition governments at, at, at different times. But yeah, certainly blame does go, I think, to the to to the top of politics. Definitely, absolutely. And what about De Valera's part in giving the keys to the to, to the church? Yeah, I mean, it's it's De Valera maintains. Why, why did he do that, Donald? There's a beautiful speech from De Valera when when Belfast was bombed uh, during the Second World War. De Valera, to his credit, 
um, sent Dublin Fire Brigade north and uh, you know, immediately kind of said, what can we do? And did it at a time when there was a lot of tension between the two states. Because, of course, Ireland era, as they called us, was neutral in the war and Northern Ireland was technically at war. And uh, he gave a great speech at the time. And I saw it actually quoted a little bit in recent weeks uh, on, on Twitter. But he basically said, you know, we, we may come from different traditions and we may have opposing visions of Ireland, but we share this island and, you know, we, we hurt in the same way and we hope in the same way. And I thought it was a great kind of olive branch towards Protestants in, in, in 1940s Ireland. And I find it remarkable that someone who would have that understanding of the diversity on the island at the same time, you know, would also be so politically close to the to the Catholic Church. It struck me as a very, very peculiar relationship between the state and the church in all aspects of life, like an education in particular. It, it's just, it's one of the, it's, there's still a lot of untangling to be done, you know, by historians in, in explaining the, 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 the extent of the relationship between church and state uh, in Ireland, which for, for a republic is absolutely remarkable. Even De Valera's constitution, the line about the church, you know, it basically says that the republic is not tied to any particular religious faith, but that the Catholic church holds a special place. <laughs> as good as saying that there's, there is that political relationship between between the two. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's this, I mean, this is going to run and run, I think. And the hero of the story is, is, is Corliss. Catherine yep. Corliss, that, that uh, uh, a local historian from outside uh, academia, <clears throat> you know, who took a course in local history uh, and began from there. A self-trained local historian who was, it should be said, in the early stages, knocked back at every step of the way. Uh, her credentials were questioned in the press. You know, who is she? Yep. She's not Trinity. She's not UCD. Uh, but she dug and she dug and she dug and... It's great, I think, that someone like that from outside the tent of academia is now one of the most respected and most 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 recognised historians in in the, in the country. What she did yeah. was incredible, incredible work. She, she lost a lot of friends through it as well. Sure they were like, yeah, I mean, would, you leave, would you leave it alone and stuff like that, you know? And like it's like you're saying that the, the press and the media were kind of saying, who's this? Sure, wasn't it Terry Prone that said... Um, you won't find any babies in Chum. Now, obviously, a year or two later, she apologised for those remarks. Mm. But she only apologised because pressure was put on her to apologise and that um, DNA did find that babies were buried yeah. there. Yeah, and I mean, I, I spoke on a panel with, with Catherine Corliss on, on uh, history and education and there were a load of school students in the audience. I could tell that they were just so amazed by her. You know, they were moved by what she was saying. I mean, there'll be, I think there'll be a, a, an uptake in the number of young people uh, who study history because of her. You know, just in the way they always talk about the COVID effect that like lots of people are going to go out to study medicine uh, and science at third level, which would be great if that is a, a, an impact of the crisis. I think she'll inspire a lot of people to maybe keep at it with history, you know, she's a great, great woman for, for what she did. And a woman of faith, you know, that's part of the story too, I think, that she was doing research where she had questions, right? And the answers as she discovered them might not have been the answers that she wanted, but they were still the answers. And yeah, she, she was honest. Brought them, she brought them to the public and it was difficult. I'm sure it was difficult work to do and challenging work to do. And I, then I, no, I noticed that she uh, turned down the opportunity to meet Pope Francis when he was, when he was here. So, I mean, that was, must have been a very difficult decision for her, for her to make. And eventually she said she'd made a full break with the church, which was, you know, which was her right. I think you'd respect her either way whatever she decided to do. But I think she um, she went on a journey, you know, a very difficult journey in doing research like that and discovering difficult things. And 
historians around the world who write about things like you know clerical sex abuse and child abuse and very difficult subjects i think because depending on your own background and what you were raised in and what you believe it must be a very exhausting process to to embark on you know it's it's a lot easier to be a a social historian in dublin telling happy stories not that i do do just that you know some i've found over the years some things some things i've researched have been difficult but I can't imagine the extent of the, the emotional roller coaster journey that, that she went on to, to do all that. When you're doing your walking tours and, and, and tourists, what like what's the common theme that tourists are here to, to be interested in in history wise? Is it Guinness? Is it, is uh, yeah, it I mean, it's very, um, for a lot of people, there's a very simplistic, uh, massive emphasis on drink. Yeah, you know, that that's kind of what they what they want to see and what they want to what they want to hear but you also meet people you meet a lot of surprising people who have a real curiosity for the country i mean one group of people that i was always amazed by were argentinians there's like a surprising amount of irish history in in, in argentina in fact they play hurling uh, in buenos mm. aires and there was a lot of irish settlement there because it was agricultural so there was a similar economy to us uh it was catholic which was another big deal i think and uh, the weather was good which was a <laughs> enticement too when you came from here uh, and there was land, and there was land in abundance. So you do meet. I wouldn't be wouldn't be lying to say you, over the years I might have met two hundred people from Argentina uh, who were born in places like Buenos Aires, had this Irish blood in their in their in them. Often had bizarre Irish names, and uh, we're here to discover that. So I love when you click with someone like that. You know, someone who's that's amazing. Interested in something. Uh, there was there was a, a real uptake in Black Americans after Obama came here, which was interesting. Wow. Uh, I'd never really met most of what you met on your, on the tour were like Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, O'Malley's, yeah. you know, like deep East Coast uh, Irish Americans. But there was a real uptake, and I, I would have met quite a lot of kind of Black Americans in the year after Obama came, and I found that really interesting that they oh. were so taken by the Ireland that they'd seen on television and stuff. And Israelis, which is a curious one, I don't know why that is, but there's a real interest in Ireland and in Israel. And uh, for whatever reason, they, they, they come here in, in a lot of numbers. And that's interesting. That can kind of challenge your own preconceptions, talking to people like that. And Germans, lastly. Uh, I think that that's a long-standing thing. Irish culture was massive in Germany in the 60s. Like, the Dubliners were arguably bigger mm. in Germany than they were in Ireland. Like, there was just massive interest in Irish culture. I think it was German culture was so toxic after the war. And people didn't want to wrap themselves in a German flag and sing German folk songs. So they got really into Irish culture. And uh, you meet loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of Germans. Uh, so, it's, yeah, I, I kind of miss meeting all these mad people from around the world uh, on, on tours. But, yeah, most of it is the kind of Kamali stuff. But when you meet people that want something a bit deeper than that, uh, there's great joy in that, great fun in that. I love doing tours now as well abroad. Yeah. I miss going. Like I'd always, if I was in a city for the first time, I'd always go on a tour. I think it's a busman's holiday, they call that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, See how he's doing it. Rub some jokes, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's no tourists really in Dublin now at the moment. Mm. And you get a real sense walking through town that that's a problem. That it's not a problem that there's no tourists. It's a problem that the city is now basically designed for tourism. Yeah, you know, very very few people uh, live in the city anymore. Like you, you you walk into town now and it's within my five km, so no one, no one report me to Neffet, please. But you walk into town and there's no one around very few communities left in 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 the city less and less public housing even 
uh, all the time. And I think that's that's a real tragedy, you know, compared to other cities in Europe where people live over shops and, you know, they use space better than we do. I don't think anyone lives, in fact, I know for a fact now, no one lives on Stevens Green. No one lives on Grafton Street. No one lives on O'Connell Street, which is kind of strange. There's no other city, capital city, where that would be where that would be the case. And when they allowed construction to go back and they said, oh, we're prioritising the construction of housing and the construction of, of dwellings, most of the construction that's happening in Dublin now is, is for tourists. You know, it's um, apart hotels, uh, hotels, uh, student accommodation, all that kind of student accommodation, which will eventually be turned into apart hotels, you know, mm. when there's no demand for it. So, uh, yeah, I think we need to reconfigure the city a little bit in terms of who we build for and what, what we build. And I'd like to say, I wish there was just more and more people in the city. And there are very few playgrounds in the city centre, very few schools. Yeah. And uh, yeah, in, Dublin feels like a ghost town in the way that a lot of capital cities don't at the minute. Yeah. Yeah, um, Donald. Twenty twenty one supposed to be a census year, but it's been postponed to twenty twenty two. How? I'm just so curious because, uh, as a social historian as such, yeah, uh, recording where you were on census night, all that kind of stuff. There has to have been some doozies you've come across over. Oh, the I years love the census. I mean, the census. We've two full censuses online in our 1901, 1911. They're great. Mm. There was a lot of pressure to get the first one from the 20s on. Uh, It hasn't happened yet. It will eventually eventually happen. Katrina Crow, who used to run the National Archives, is a real champion of the census. And she's trying to get the one from, I think it might be 26. uh, Yeah, I think it's 26 up online. But I've gone through the 1901, 1911 censuses, and there's just great stuff in them. I mean, Sean McDermott, who died in, uh, after the rising, one of the signatories of the proclamation, mm. his 1911 census return. I'm always meaning to print it out, actually, and put it on the wall. It's really funny. He lists his uh, religion as Irish nationalist <laughs> and his his marital status as single but not for long. There's another uh, Tatters the Dog is in the 1911 census somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and he's I think he's listed as Catholic and uh, unable to read and write. <laughs> <laughs> which is great <laughs> or maybe it's that he speaks only irish but there's there's a couple of dogs in the in the people put their pets down in the census um and then there's other things that are like there's people that are missing mm. so like women didn't have the right to vote yet so in 1911 a lot of the suffragettes across britain and ireland they said well if we're invisible if the state won't recognize us and give us the right to vote if we don't exist we shouldn't be in the census and lots of those women hid on census night in different places. So there's very famous kind of early 20th century Irish women, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, uh, for one. And they're just not in the census because they, as an act of protest, they disappeared that night. So there's all these mad things in the census that you can find. Like One of the other lads on the, when I was on the Community blog, one of the other lads went through the census and he found uh, atheists and agnostics in the 1911 census. Like imagine describing yourself as an atheist in Ireland in 1911. People must have thought you were mad. Yeah. <laughs> two young ones, two uh, sisters living in Ranla, uh, list their religion as suffragettes. So like you had all this kind of right. stuff going on. So yeah, I mean I'm sure there's enough there's enough you enough uh, wits in Ireland now that you might get some funny answers next year <laughs> on the yeah. sense that they'll find in a century. But they're a really brilliant source of uh, information. Mm. And for all kinds of different reasons. And they're kind of emotional too. Like if you find 
if you can go back into your family history to even see the handwriting of your great 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 grandfather or whatever yeah. your great great grandfather is a very powerful thing you know it's it brings them that little bit closer to you and i love the census you can get lost in it forever and it's free mm. like the 1901 and 1911 census are both online for free if your house is old enough you can see he was living in your house 100 years ago which is mad uh, like a friend of mine discovered that her apartment uh, down on back street thomas mcdonough one of the leaders of the rising had lived in it Wow. No way. Like that's would you would you not be like wow that's insane you know if you discover the history like that to your house nuts, yeah. so it's great now most of us live in houses that were built in the sixties the seventies the eighties the nineties so you're not going to find it never mind find someone interested in it but for people who live in parts of Dublin uh, like Stony Batter one or two friends there you can see who was living in the houses there are artisan dwelling company houses there were workers from Guinness or from Jemison, you know, and there they are, and there's their names. I think it really brings your house to life as much as anything else. So, yeah, get lost. You can get lost in it, and it'd be great fun uh, in a hundred years when they go through ours and see ours. <laughs> well, 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 are they are they planning on putting any more years up on, online? Um, I think twenty six is the first one post independence, and I'm open to correction on that. But uh, there there has been talk of that going online for a long long time now and it hasn't happened i think one reason that would be a really interesting census is it's post-revolution mm. you know it's four four years into the birth of the state and it'd be interesting to see you know they, people always talk about the lads who lost the civil war the republicans lots of them couldn't get work here that they emigrated that they kind of pop up in the four corners of the earth that they, you know there were more ira men in camden town than there were in dublin <laughs> and it'd be interesting to see that kind of stuff you know you, you'd see the impact of of uh a post-revolutionary society, you know, who, the losers, you know, who was left, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. And uh, eventually that'll be the next one up online from the, from the twenties to dig into. But I think it's really, it says a lot about us that, that they got that up online and accessible and free. I think that's yeah. really, really something to celebrate. You know? Absolutely. And then this, this the religion is cling on and stuff now, you know, people just mess with it. But. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> a load of jokers we have. Um, this, this year, then in terms of you, you mentioned earlier on, and I'm conscious we're, we're, we're tight on time, but you mentioned earlier on about the, the decade of centenaries. Yeah. This year, of course, marks a, a pretty big one um, in the signing of the treaty. Um, hopefully they get to do something to mark it, although I'm not sure what, the, what they can do. Um, yeah, you know what I'd love them to come, do? You know? the, the, the treaty debates happened in uh, Earlsford Terrace. In what's now the the National Concert Hall, uh, it was a big one because like for throughout the War of Independence, the doll was like an illegal Parliament, so it was kind of underground and they couldn't really like they had the big meetings in the Mansion House at the start, but you know within a couple of months the doll was illegal, so they, they weren't able to really meet in public. You know they met in secret places, uh, mostly in the kind of suburbs like Dublin Six, Dublin Four, but uh, then when they're having the treaty debates, they're able to be out in the open and they have them in the Concert Hall. Uh, Elsewhere Terrace, what was then the college, and they're all there. And there's great pictures of them all walking in, you know, Collins, Griffith, uh, Liam Mellows, Markovich in their finest. And it'd be great to reenact those, you know, to get actors yeah. to to go to Elsewhere Terrace, uh, the concert hall now. I know it looks totally different, but get around that and just act out the speeches. It'd be great. And of course, you can do it socially distanced. If we're still yeah. socially well, distanced, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But the speeches are really vicious. Mm. Like, uh, Markovich is talking and someone, I think it's Con uh, Collins, shouts like, you know, you're a damn English woman. <laughs> so, someone else's, uh, Markovich denounces divorce in her speech, which was kind of mad, which is like, there'd be English immorality, like divorce if this thing passes. But just mad tension in the room and, you know, people 
mocking each other and shouting at each other and Patrick Pierce's mother was there and she said something like, you know, my son didn't die for this mockery of a treaty and the place erupted. So it'd be, uh, it'd be great to see the, the carnage of the treaty debates reenacted by by actors. And there's people that can do it. A new production's brilliant. I don't know if you've ever seen their stuff. They're site-specific actors, so they go to the places where history happened and they kind of reenact it. Yeah. And during the rising centenary, they did some mad stuff where like you'd meet an actor and you'd be he'd be like, follow me, and he'd be going down the back lanes of Moore Street and they'd be having shootouts. Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, they're the kind of guys in new productions the kind of guys and girls who could bring the treaty debates to life in a big in a big way but the the problem with the treaty is that the obsession now for a century has been on uh collins and dev Mm. and are you a collins man or are you a dev man uh i'd like to see just a broader view of the 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 treaty you know and especially uh, most people in ireland don't know anything about the british side of the debate yeah you know people like uh uh, Lord Birkenhead and uh, Hammer Greenwood and Churchill. I mean, these were rampant, unapologetic imperialists, uh, nasty political operators, you know. And ultimately, I think the blame for partition in Ireland, it, it's not on the shoulders of Collins or Deaf, you know. It, it was uh, it, 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 it rests in, in London. And uh, we don't know much about those people. And, and the point that the president made a couple of years ago in a speech, it was very true. He said, look, we spend a lot of time in this country talking about was it right or wrong to have a revolution? But we never really talk about colonialism or imperialism or the British side of things. And uh, to put a spotlight on on Britain's role in, in the treaty would be interesting, you know, because they were not going to lose. They were adamant that if they conceded here, if they lost in Ireland, the whole thing was like Jenga, you know, just go, <clears throat> India would fall, uh, Egypt would fall, South Africa would fall. I think that was Ireland's misfortune that we may have left the empire a little bit too early, you know, that we were never going to get the full the full shilling. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I presume Three Castles Burning will, will have some, some great stuff on it. Yeah, I mean, I, um, the next few are, I'm getting away from the revolutionary period because I think yeah, I've, done a, I've done a lot on it. Mm. The next one is on the Monto. Take her up the Monto. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, ma- amazing story, Monto, where it came from, where it went. Uh, after that, I'm planning to do one on the, the nightclubs of Dublin in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the beginning of kind of dance music in Dublin. So to make the, the, the aim is that the shows are all so different that mm. someone might tune in one week and say, ah, I don't really care about this subject. I don't care about League of Ireland football. I don't care about 1920. But they'll come back next week and go, oh, I kind of do care about this. And they'll, they'll give it a listen then. So, yeah, by later in the year, I'll probably be really back into the revolutionary period. But uh, I'm giving people a break from the decade of centenaries for just, just a little bit. Will we get more of the bold last Fallon on the podcast? Don't yeah, he's great. Yeah, well, he's so great. Yeah, he's, uh, he's been on, I think, four times. and Cold hero. Had, no one had actually done that work before. Like, no one had really studied fire in the revolution. Like, when you think about it, if you're having a revolution, if you're putting down a revolution from the British point of view, uh, there's always going to be fire. You know, there's arson, there's, like, the burning of Cork, the burning of Abrigan. Uh, and he really made that his thing, that he studied the impact that fire had on, on the revolution. And he just found a little niche and he went with it. Yeah. So I had him on a few times. Uh, one show was about looters, the looters in 1916. Yeah, that was a brilliant episode. They were, they were burning stuff like on the first day of the rising before the British gunboat to Helga even arrived. Like mm. Dublin was burning on the first day of the rising because people were looting and then this still happens. Like if you look at footage of the Rodney King riots or even the the riots in recent months in the States, when you loot something, you set it on fire because you think you're burning the evidence. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you move on then. 
And that was true in 1916 as well, that people were emptying shops and then setting them on fire. And Laos kind of proved that actually this urban myth that the British gunboat, the Helga, came in and rained in incendiary shells on Dublin and the place went up. Uh, he kind of busted that. The Dublin was burning on the first night of the Rising before that ship had even shown up. So we did it ourselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was my um, time, one of my favourite Three Castles Born episode, and since the pandemic, we've been lucky to get them weekly almost. Um, but the Willie the Willie Birmingham episode just oh, great, just, oh, just, brilliant I just episode. I just yeah, really resonate with people. And uh, I did that with his son, and we did it in Tara Street Fire Station. And, and the idea of doing that now, I mean, you couldn't because the lads are so no, busy. They, yeah. they run the the ambulance service as well as the fire engines, so they're COVID frontline workers now. It's funny how quick things change like that, you know. Things that is you there any doing. TV documentaries on Willie Birmingham though? There should be, uh, yeah. and there's there's a there's a, so much archive on them that could be done. You know, like the work could be done very easily because uh, the main thing you need, if you want to make, there's great ideas for documentaries and all kinds of things. But if you don't have the archive, if the video doesn't exist, yeah. the audio doesn't exist, then sorry, you can't do it's it. But there's so much yeah. great footage of Willie Birmingham that it would be, yeah, it'd be a relatively easy job for someone if they take it on. And I hope I hope someone does. Yeah. I think it would really resonate with the public in a big way. People love those kind of heroic stories, don't they? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's made, absolutely. yeah. It's made for it's made for made for the screen. I think very that funny point. man too, you know, very funny man in his in his own way. And I like that his funeral happened in Patrick's Cathedral, despite the fact he was Catholic. He became so close to the the Reverend up there who actually let, he let the homeless people have free funerals in the, in the cathedral. Which is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of became friends, and there's great footage of his. His, uh, his coffin going going to Patrick's Cathedral. I just think it's, there's so many layers to the story that it would be great TV for someone to take, for someone to take on. I think that the point around archive audio and archive footage was a great recent example of that was the Johnny Cash documentary. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, those tapes. They just took that fantastic tape of that gig and ran with it. Yeah. Uh, they they made it work by pulling in more stuff. You know, Most of the audio was... I say most of the archive was cash in America and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But they had enough Irish stuff to make it work. And I thought that was a great piece of TV. It was really good. Television was fantastic over Christmas. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was really, really good. I remember thinking, God, I should say in more and watch TV. It's always, <laughs> this, it's always this good. But the Johnny Cash documentary was was great. Absolutely great. My mom went to see um, The Highwaymen, which was like the, the country yeah, yeah. super group. So like the NWA of country music, yeah. and they were all, <laughs> all the best, all the best country stars in one group: uh, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, and Johnny Cash. Yeah, and she always says, even at that point in life when he was getting on, you know, that he, he still had us. Yeah, women still loved him, and men wanted to be him. But I thought it was, I, I wasn't aware of the extent of Cash's affection for Ireland, and uh, I thought it was a lovely piece of work. I like seeing super fans interviewed in things. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I am one of those kind of super fans with the Smiths, you know, and uh, it's a bit weird, you know, the level of obsession people develop with bands. But to see these lads in, you know, it, I think one guy was in the Liberties and I think the other guy was down the country somewhere. But to see their Johnny Cash collections and how excited they still were, I just thought it was really beautiful. It was just great TV. It, was it really, feel, really was. Feel good. Donald, um, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I was going to ask one more before we go because I figure we, we've we've already run over. So sure, what's a few minutes more? In for um, a penny, for a pound. What they say? Th that's it, Donald. That's it. But just <laughs> when you were talking, you mentioned two two things you've said kind of spurred it into my head, and it wasn't something that I was going to ask about earlier. It just literally dawned on me as you were saying two things there. Earlier on, you said about 
kind of the pandemic and 2020 being a great year then for Irish podcast in the sense of it, it, it gave birth to some unbelievable productions. Um, and then when you referenced um, kind of fire and, and one thing and the other, it dawned on me the, the Stardust podcast that was produced by oh. a journal last year. And yeah. of course, we're, we're, we're getting to that time of year where the heroin stories always come out a little bit more and, and one thing and the other. Um, will you will you be doing something on it? Will you? Uh, you know what? I am. Um, it's happened to me twice that I had an idea for something and then it was done by people with a much bigger budget. If you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. In the sense yeah. that my budget, as I said, is a, it's a Zoom recorder, but uh, they did such an immaculate job on it. Mm. This, the the journal that team that I think it, it, there's nothing to do. You know what I mean? In the sense they, yeah. they they really captured it so well. The the startup story that I have is that my my dad was in the brigade in the late 80s and he wasn't long in the fire brigade when the big strike happened in, in 1988 and the firemen were really vilified like there was nasty stuff I think the evening herald front page was people will die mm-hmm. you know it was like these guys are on strike and people will die and uh, one day the stardust families came down because one of the newspapers said something like there could be another stardust and if there is another stardust they take the blame for it and the stardust families went this isn't right you know these guys did everything they could for, for our loved ones. And uh, they came down to one of the picket lines. And people who'd been burnt in the no. fire, people who were you know, badly hurt, came down and, and stood with the fire brigade. I just think that was really, really, well, just a yeah. powerful moment of kind of... Absolutely. ...working class decency, you know, common ground. Mm. Uh, so that was... I think the journal did that so well that I was just like, right, that's that's done now. And uh, yeah. fair play to them for doing it. And they picked up a lot of praise that it, it rightly deserved and won a lot of awards. The other one was a much lighter story. I wanted to do something on the... We started on football, so we'll end on football. The the Wimbledon thing, you know, when they were talking about bringing Wimbledon Football Club to yes. Dublin. And there was all these great banners, you know, uh, Wimbledon for tennis, Dublin for football. <laughs> <laughs> and the Wimbledon fans were against it, like the real Wimbledon fans who became yeah. MK Dons, so the good guys in the story. And not MK Dons, not a bad guys in the story. AFC Wimbledon. AFC Wimbledon. Sorry, yeah. fuck MK Dons. I want that on record. <laughs> they're, they're the bad guys. <laughs> AFC Wimbledon are the football people. Uh, but the, the Wimbledon fans had banners, you know, Dublin equals death. And they didn't mean like damn Dublin. They meant if we go there, our club dies. And uh, I did a bit of research on that story with a podcast in mind. But then one day off the ball did a feature on it, like an hour and a half feature, because there was nothing yeah, for it to do. You know what I mean? There was no sports to, uh, to cover. So off the ball, we're doing great historical stuff. They Paul Rouse on, talking about the history of GAA. And then one day they did this mammoth, historian. mammoth documentary on uh, on Wimbledon. And I just went, fuck it, they've done it. You know, did, it's been done. Did you, did, were you any of Paul's uh, classes when you were in UCD? Don't yeah, you? and not only was I, 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 I had a, a really nice gig a couple of summers ago, bringing American students around Ireland and basically pointing at the Cliffs of Moher and, you know, pointing at... <laughs> <laughs> pointing at UVF murals in Belfast but one of the things they got was they were taken to UCD and Paul Rouse gave them like a crash course history of, of Ireland oh, and he just did it in a way of never he's just a brilliant communicator uh, I think he's yeah. one of the best and like he was managing a Gaelic team uh, you know writing the newspaper column teaching writing books he's just really pr- prolific uh, he was in the bloody Sunday documentary of course and he's always yeah. popping up in different places I'm a big fan of Paul Rouse I must get him on the podcast I was just right. thinking the same thing when you said his name. It was yeah. somebody who, uh, who I thought of a long time ago, and uh, his name just vanished in, into obscurity for me until you said it. I was like, Paul, he was one oh, of the right. fucking yeah, best no, lecturers I had. Just everything he talked about, you were on the edge of your seat listening to him. Like, 
Yeah, and he doesn't really use a lot of print. You know what He just mm. kind of goes with it. And I love the the confidence of, of someone that can just get up. And they have their slides, but a lot of what they're saying is kind of coming off the top of their heads, you know, and, and yeah. the, the knowledge is strong enough that they can do it. And he's a really great performer. Yeah, he's, he's a really great performer. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, uh, Wimbledon. So, new, News Talk bet me, uh, off the ball bet me to Wimbledon. And uh, the journal did such a great job with the, the Stardust series that mm-hmm. I hope actually that they'll, they'll follow it up, you know. It'd be great if they came back in a year and did some follow up interviews because there's talk now around the new the new inquiry. But, uh, yeah, fair play to them. That was journalism at its, at its, at its best. Absolutely. Indeed, indeed. Um, Donald, absolute pleasure as always. And there is a raft of things we could and we will talk to you about another day. But uh, we've taken up far too much for Wednesday evening for you as it is. No, so. no, it was great. It was really nice. And uh, you don't see many people anymore these days. Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. Even if it's on a screen, it's nice. You know. Ne- next time we do like the people, you feel like the people in Super Value are your friends now because it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, stop, yes. you see all I just made the dons today to get out of the house. <laughs> Come here, Donald. Um, you over the last year as well. Like, obviously, I want you. I want you to tell the listeners how we can, how you, they can find Tree Castles Born, but also you've been selling a lot of merchandise as well uh, for a couple of charities, um, which I've the proud proud owner of a couple of badges and a couple of t-shirts. Um, is there any more plans for more merchandise down yeah, the road? Yeah, I mean, one of the um problems with with level five is that the producers have kind of shut down you know um yeah but a nice i, I just I, I've, I've, I've always had an obsession with ephemera so you know badges stickers mm. posters all that kind of stuff uh and uh bootlegging i love bootleg culture you know i love how yeah. like during italian 90 and usa 94 there were t-shirts on o'connell bridge the next morning yeah. referencing the events of the game yesterday <laughs> and i was like how did that happen like how how did the ray Henson shirt make its way uh from an idea to a reality in like a day so i got really into this kind of culture and uh we did one when, when jack charlton died uh, of the italian 90 remember chow yeah the italian I 90 it, yeah. have it yeah, we put them in. We changed the color of the tricolor from green, white, and uh, and uh, and red to green, white, and orange. And it said, you know, thank you for the days, Jack Charlton. And uh, yeah, we raised about I think fifteen hundred euros for Alzheimer's Ireland. Mm-hmm. But I got a seasoned assist from FIFA. Wow. <laughs> yeah, someone obviously reported it, and FIFA said, oh, we own the copyright to Chow. You know, please remove this from your shop immediately. So I took it down in the end. But the money was already made, so it didn't really matter. But uh, I just love the buzz. Wow. Of it. You know, and some of the stuff has been kind of funny, like the 1988 logo. Like, that's classic. You know, the three mm. castles stacked on top of each other, yellow, blue, red. Uh, no one knows who owns it. I just think it was so classic. I brought it back. I think money on that went to Harold's Cross Hospice. So it's been kind of fun. And I got to develop a kind of, you know, a relationship with the, with the printing company down in East Wall. And I just, I, I enjoy making the stuff. I get a buzz off the stuff and seeing the stuff. And as you said, it's raised a few quid for good causes as we've gone. So it's been great crack. Yeah, great crack. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. How can people listen to shirts arrives and they're still warm, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. How can people listen to Tree Castles Morning? It's everywhere. Uh, like yourselves on, on Spotify, uh, iTunes. Uh, unlike Donald Trump, I'm still on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Tree Castles with the number three. Tree Castles Morning. I just started one there. Uh, very artistically, it's only going to follow one page. It only follows Grogan's. It doesn't even follow me. <laughs> Brilliant! Don't don't follow anyone else. <laughs> Grogan's will be. I think Grogan's will be a year close. I, I that was my nightmare vision that they'd make it a full 
year cycle. And you know what? It's starting to look likely that it might be. Yeah, uh, so, yeah so it's the only page I follow is Grogan's for those terrible, terrible memes that they produce. <laughs> Danny, where can we listen to us? In, in all the places that Donald has just referenced when you're done listening and binge listening. And but the, sure, they know where to listen to you because they're listening now. <laughs> That's very ah, true. But there's always, a co- there's always a couple of stragglers you have to pick up. And then once we do we do this before, so then when we plug Manscaped, we don't seem like shields, you know? Um, <laughs> so you can get Which us everywhere, everywhere and anywhere. And uh, look, lads, January doesn't have to be blue when you don't have to have blue balls. You can go to manscaped.com and enter the code WTSPOD and you'll get 20% off and free shipping. So you can look after yourself and your lads below the belt. And if you get the weed whacker, me and Mero have talked plenty of times in this podcast about there being a lack of a reliable nose hair trimmer. Well, the weed whacker puts that to bed. <laughs> I am inhaling things up me nose at the moment. I had two cornflakes <laughs> fly up there the other day when I used the weed whacker. So check it out. Manscaped.com. WTS pod. Get 20% off free shipping he's at Banjo Morty on Twitter I'm at Merrigan Mania and until next time clear eyes full hearts Pat Lewis thanks so much Donald thank you Donald Song of Fault